1: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS. You know, those forever chemicals in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of US tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation free countertop purifiers to higher capacity under sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any Aquatru purifier. Just go to aquatrue.com. that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U dot com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any Aquatru water purifier, go to Aquatrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N.
2: Hey everyone, it's Kate. Mark and I are doing something a little different this week. We're handing off our feed to podcaster and host Rachel Bell of Your Last Meal with Rachel Bell, and she's doing the same for us. Personally, because of the sheer quantity of podcasts out there, I have a hard time finding the ones that suit me, and I figure I'm not alone in this sentiment, so I thought it'd be nice to share Rachel's podcast with you. It's a food podcast that I really enjoy. It's comprised of, yes, guests explaining what their last meals would be, But it's also a great interview show, which, if you're listening to our podcast, is presumably something you enjoy. Plus, it's interspersed with historical anecdotes and fun facts, which we do not do, as you know. And makes me feel like we should, because she does a great job of it. Feedback always welcome. (laughs) On the episode you're about to listen to, Rachel interviews the outstanding, brilliant, and refreshing comedian Margaret Cho, It's hard to feel like I need to introduce her because she's Margaret Cho and is well-known for so much. Uh, Hilariously, the thing that always pops into my mind when I think about her is the episode of Sex and the City where she plays Lynn Cameron, a fashion producer trying to get Carrie to do her show. Carrie finally agrees and then falls on the runway in a horrific, excuse the pun, fashion. And Margaret Cho drops about 80 F-bombs in 20 minutes. But she's also a social activist and an extremely successful stand-up comedian who opened for Jerry Seinfeld in her late teens. And she's acted in many of your favorite TV shows and movies, and she loves to cook. It's really hard not to like Margaret Cho, and it's really hard not to like Rachel. So enjoy this. We'd love to hear what you think. And next week, we'll be back with our regularly scheduled programming. Thanks for listening.
3: Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, legendary comedian Margaret Cho. Yeah, I've been doing comedy for 40 years, and I still love it. Margaret has countless comedy specials and albums, is an Emmy-nominated actress, and an activist. She is just about to take off on a new tour called the Live and Livid Comedy Tour, doing stand-up around the country from April through September. When you talk to Margaret about food, it becomes clear very quickly that she's a cook, she is a food lover, she loves food from all around the world. Basically, stars are just like us. Margaret is obsessed with eating, but sometimes it gets a little bit weird. Margaret shares some of the stranger things that she craves, for example, AirPods. And then we'll hear from you, my lovely listeners, about some of your favorite out-of-the-ordinary food combinations, plus the dichotomous world of Spam, an ingredient with a fascinating history that is equally loved and judged. All of this coming up later in the show. But first, my conversation with Margaret Cho. I've read so many things that I don't know if they are true or not about your start in comedy, like you opening for Seinfeld when you're 14 years old.
4: So why don't you go ahead and tell me, how did you get your start in comedy? So I was a little bit older. Uh, I didn't open for Seinfeld until I was in my late teens, but um, he uh, helped me a lot in the beginning. I started doing stand-up comedy at 14, and it was through school. And I was in a theater class with Sam Rockwell. And he uh, and I would go to the local comedy clubs and do sets as a comedy duo. So there's some footage of it on YouTube now. That's really ridiculous. And we're just like babies. But uh, he ended up moving to New York and I stayed in San Francisco and um, I just wanted to be a comedian And I really didn't care about school or anything like that. I dropped out of high school and didn't go to college, but I entered a college comedy competition. And one of the prizes was to open for Jerry Seinfeld. So I won the West Coast region. Uh, The Midwest was won by John Glazer, who was, of course, a very... Impressive and famous comedian. And the other, the East Coast was won by John DiMaggio of The um, Amazing Futurama. You know, so we all had our own um, success later, but that was the famous thing where we all got to open for Jerry Seinfeld. And then I talked to Jerry after, and he said that had a unique point of view, and if I were to continue to do comedy, I would find that I would have a very successful career. And he's been so instrumental and helpful. So uh, yeah, I've been doing comedy for 40 years, and I still love it. There was another contest where you won a hot air balloon ride. That's correct. Uh, This is also uh, in my late teens. I won a hot air balloon excursion where we were met with a terrible freak windstorm and got knocked out of the sky. And one person actually died, not in our basket, but in uh, the basket next to ours. What? Um, It ran into a big tree horrible. Oh it was actually God. a horrible horrible event. And I got dragged uh by my face across a cow field, but what was fortunate it was very soft, but it didn't taste very good and <laughs> it was really traumatic actually. It was it was a really nightmarish experience. And you were on a date, weren't you? I was on a date with a, with a gentleman who was very chivalrous actually on the point of impact he actually used his body to shield mine and his arms actually took the blow for a lot of it which is actually pretty incredible you know when we're tested at that moment of impact you know it's incredible what people will do he actually really did um did something great so then we went to the hospital after we got bandaged up and then we tried to have sex which is really (laughs) funny because we were really bandaged up. I never saw him again but I think that uh you know what a great guy. <laughs> I have to
3: say, I've learned that I am bad in those situations. One time a friend and I, we were snorkeling. We were in Thailand and underwater, my friend was going, shark, like gurgling, like shark. I instinctively put her between me and the shark. I tried to kill her. I tried to have the shark kill her. <laughs> and I've done another thing like that, too, where I'm just worried about myself under pressure that I try to kill my friends.
4: Well, it's not a, it's not like an earnest desire to kill your friends. It's really like you're just going to try to stay alive, which I think is really what we all should be doing. <laughs> and so I think I respect that. I definitely don't know what I would do in the situation like that. I would I, if I'm tested. I don't want to be tested. I don't want to know what i'm capable of you know but that's that's super scary i think any kind of snorkeling anything to me is really very scary because you're already not really supposed to be underwater
3: yeah just because they sell you a 6.99 plastic
4: mask doesn't mean you should be down there (laughs) that is i mean i'm sure it's a beautiful experience but uh also i'm scared i am too
3: You grew up in San Francisco. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, your culinary experience as a kid, whether at home or just what your family would eat in the city?
4: Well, we are really into uh, foraging. Uh, My family would always go to the conservatory and the arboretums and steal plants in order to propagate them and eat them. And then we would go on specific like journeys you know, whether it's Yosemite or different national parks and steel plants in order to cultivate them and eat them. I have no idea what they are, but my grandparents would also make their own medicine. Hmm. They would use an old crock pot. They lived till their late 90s and they, they made their own um, remedies for everything, which did not taste good, did not smell good. They would always be brewing something in the crock pot. So that was part of it. There was a lot of sort of like foraging, getting the plant-based cures, a lot of folk medicine. A lot of our culinary stuff was really like we're living off of the land. We had gardens in the backyard in our front yard, which I still do now. I cultivated a beautiful crop of tomatoes and strawberries last year. And it made me feel closer to my family because that's just the kind of thing that we would do. I haven't made any medicine though.
3: So it's interesting because usually when you hear of people foraging, they're taking the actual food off the plant and eating that. Did your family do that, or did they only take the whole plant and then
4: regrow it at home? No, they would only take clipping, like cuttings from plants to propagate. They would never take fruit, which I think is really i I I think that's fair. You know, I also think it's fair to take fallen fruit. Mm -hmm. I think that's totally okay. I would never pluck a fruit off a vine that I did not. Grow myself because there's like sort of a farmer's law of like, you don't do that to other farmers. Like that's just not cool. I am super destroyed when my, you know, plants that I've been like cultivating for so long and spent so many seasons with are now finally ready to fruit and people are stealing. That's just... Unconscionable, especially if it's squirrels. Squirrels always love to take. Squirrels are sort of lawless creatures; of they don't care. No, they don't
3: care. Right now, it seems like forging forging is so trendy. But when you were a kid, when I was a kid, I wonder if it was more of the immigrants who did it. Because my dad is an immigrant, and I was so embarrassed. We would go to the dentist parking lot where where our dentist was in the suburbs, and they had an olive tree. And I don't think people knew you could eat the olives. I think they planted it as decoration. But we would go on the weekends, and I hated it. I didn't want anyone to see me. And we'd put all the olives in a jar. And my dad would go home and there'd be curing in our garage. And now I think back, I'm like, dude, I would do that. But I didn't want to do it then.
4: Yeah, it's embarrassing because we think we just want to have I wish that I could have a real Coca-Cola in my lunch at school. Oh, like, Not dried squid in my lunchbox. Like, you know, like I think, you know, there is that feeling of shame around these food traditions that we grow up with that aren't necessarily like mainstream. I mean, of course, now the culinary landscape is such that everybody wants to have that sort of real connection with that authentic immigrant lifestyle that's like very chic I mean I I love a home cured olive what a treat a garage cured olive yeah incredible (laughs) incredible
3: My dad would also see cactus fruit growing in people's backyards, and he would knock on the door and ask if he could harvest it. This was in a Bay Area suburb, and not a single one of these people knew that the fruit that grew on their cactus was edible, so they were very confused, but they still let the Israeli man traipse through their houses and cut off all their cactus fruits. Once again, very embarrassing as a child, would absolutely do the same thing now. All right, time for a quick break, but when we return... Margaret Cho reveals her last meal. Margaret Cho, let's talk about your last meal. What would you choose to eat for your last meal?
4: My very last meal? um, Gosh, I love a Spam Musubi. You know, Spam Musubi is from Hawaii. And it's uh, basically a way to replicate unagi, which is eel, which in uh, World War II, the Japanese fishermen, Hawaiian fishermen, American fishermen in Hawaii were not allowed to fish. And so they were trying to figure out how can we recreate our foods by not allowing to fish? Like, that's like so barbaric to not allow fishermen to fish. So... Yeah, so they started to take Spam, which was readily available. They put a similar glaze, the new unagi glaze, which is like a sweet soy sauce on it, and put rice and wrapped it in nori seaweed and created a kind of a faux unagi for themselves. And then this itself became quite a delicacy and something that I really love. And now they actually created teriyaki Spam. You know, the gelatinous coating, the Spam afterbirth? Yeah. (laughs) That's in there, that weird placenta. Yeah. That is um got sort of a soy sweet base. I would also probably make a tom kaga, which is my favorite Thai dish, which is the coconut shrimp paste soup with I put shrimp paste in it with chicken. I love Thai food and I have um such a a great appreciation for it that I won't even go to a restaurant. I have to make it myself. Oh. and make it the right way. And I it takes a while. Like the galangal is sometimes hard to source if you're not going to specifically a Thai market. Right. Uh, also lemongrass. I mean, lemongrass is more readily available, but the makrut lime leaves that I think are hard to get too. I have to go to like a Thai grocery to get all the things. And so I would probably make myself a really coconut forward, not with coconut milk, but coconut cream.
5: Yes. Al-Ka-Gai.
4: Either that or I'll do a, another thing would be a miffi. Uh, nabe which is a uh, napa cabbage layered with either like um really thinly sliced brisket and like you make like packages and then you cut them so that you have this beautiful like million layered uh, oh. nabe uh, different kinds of mushrooms on top and then I'll actually I have a bonito that I'll scrape I'll I have the big hard tuna oh yeah the like big just hunk like a of chunk yeah and I'll, I'll scra- I have a scraper and I'll scrape that, which makes my cats get very interested. And with the kombu, make a dashi and I'll do that with the uh, cassette burner that I'll put on my uh, dining room table. Cause it's so something like this, so beautiful get like the nabe in the middle, the donabe in the middle of the table. Even if it's just me, to me, it's really beautiful. I love that. I lived in Japan
3: for a year, and that was one of my favorite traditions was just sitting on the floor around the little coffee table and everyone eating out of the same pot. And so it always seemed like one person would designate themselves kind of the leader. And towards the end, they would put the noodles in or the rice in. And mm-hmm. I loved how in that country, when you go out to dinner and also with Nabe, someone would... This was my experience, at least when we would go out to dinner with a big group, someone would serve everyone to make sure everyone got, you know, if it was a big bowl of soup, like everyone gets a shrimp because, you know, I always get anxiety when you're splitting food, you know, like Chinese food, because people, they don't pay attention and they take all the shrimp.
4: So I like the person in
3: charge of distribution.
4: That's always really loving when people put uh, food on your plate. Yes. You know, while, while eating. And that's very much my parents' way of doing things. They were like piling food on my plate the like the, yeah. the choicest little pieces and you know that's so beautiful i i think um yeah that's a really loving gesture but japan is really the food is it's so great and then i also love like a kombini food i love oh, the onigiri the onigiri oh it's so good it's I the best love it i love it and i love um The weird desserts with the red bean and like mochi balls. Yes, that's my favorite too. Oh, good. Or the fish cake. Or the fried chicken. We don't have a konbani culture here, which is really sad. The egg salad, it's so good. Oh, it's so soft on the fluffy
3: white bread. I know you could eat a whole meal at 7-Eleven and be very happy about it.
4: It's so good. But I just love a lot of little things. Like I love the concept of meza or tapas. So that's my favorite kind of get lots of little things or panchan, you know, with Korean food, all the little plates. And that's just so appealing to me.
3: For her last meal, Margaret Cho wants a couple of things, starting with Tom Kaga, a Thai coconut soup. So going back to the Tom Kaga, you said that you like to make it at home and not at a restaurant.
4: Have you not had good versions at Thai restaurants? Of course, they're delicious, but they're somebody else's interpretation. Okay. Which for my palate, It's not mine. Mine isn't necessarily good. It might not be good, but it's good to me, which is yeah. all that matters. So I love cooking for myself because I can make the food perfect, tailor-made for me and not have to sort of think about, like, how is this properly done Or how is this the right way? You know, it's just my interpretation and it's only for me and sometimes my cats. I think it's unfortunate that a
3: lot of people who live on their own don't cook for themselves. I think people think, oh, that's something to do when you're with other people or when you have company. I think people eat a lot of convenience foods and easy foods. And and I'm like you. I feel like I'm worth cooking for. I love cooking. I love food. I'm going to make whatever I want, even if it's just me. I don't care how involved it is.
4: Yeah. And I do love a quick convenience food as well. And I'll also just really enjoy that, you know, and do it the way that I want. But I think cooking for yourself, it's the most loving thing to be your own like personal chefs or best is also like growing things and then eating them, Mm -hmm. you know, like that to me is like really beautiful. Like if I can in the summer have like tomatoes and basil from my garden, it's just so spectacular. So I think yeah, you got to cook for yourself. It, it, it's not hard. Also, if you want to cook for other people, it's best to cook a lot for yourself so that when you cook for others, it's not a scary thing, not performative. You know, it's like, oh, I do this all the time, so it doesn't matter. I have like such a packed kitchen with all sorts of equipment. That's my luxury. Clay pots at the Donabies. I have a Donabies smoker. Oh, the mochi machine. The mochi machine. You have a mochi machine? Yeah, I have a Tiger mochi machine which it's just really special. Yeah, I love it. I I love to just cook for myself and also cook for others.
3: The main attraction of Margaret's last meal is spam musubi. Spam musubi is a thick slice of Spam pan fried until hot and crispy and basted with a sweet and savory glaze that usually includes soy, mirin and sugar. So you take that Spam that's been fried and glazed and you balance it on top of a chunk of rice that is the exact same oval shape as the Spam. And then the whole thing is held together with a thick strip of nori. I've always seen them sold as a grab and go item. So they come wrapped in plastic wrap. And if I am lucky enough to get my hands on some Spam Musubi and I pick it up and it is still warm, there is nothing better than a still warm Spam Musubi. Spam Musubi originated in Hawaii. I'm not sure if I've had it more than 10 times, but it is still one of my favorite snacks of all time. The salty, crispy spam is balanced out by the soft, plain, warm rice. I don't care if I'm hungry, I don't care if I just ate. If I see a spam masubi and it is still warm, I am buying it. Nobody knows for sure who invented spam masubi. I tried to fact check Margaret's story, and while I did find articles about Japanese Americans being banned from fishing in Alaska and Canada around World War II, I didn't find anything about it being a substitute for eel. But there are two Hawaiian women who claim to invent Spam Masubi. First, there's Mitsuko Kaneshiro. She started selling Spam Masubi out of City Pharmacy in Honolulu. And then there is Barbara Funamura. She sold it out of Joni Hana Restaurant in Kauai. It seems like both of them were doing their thing in the early 1980s. Spam was invented by Hormel in 1937, and it became really popular during World War II when it was a main ration for the U.S. military.
6: U.S. soldiers, they had Spam with them quite a bit.
3: That's Robert Koo, professor of Asian-American studies at Binghamton University in New York and author of Dubious Gastronomy, the Cultural Politics of Eating Asian in the U.S.
6: Now we're going into the Korean War and then the Vietnam War. Spam was for whatever reasons, a item that was really in high demand by a lot of the people who were living in the areas where the U.S. military were being set up. So it's not just the Pacific, of course, it's also in Europe. The British were very much into spam for a long time. Even the Russian armies were um, sharing in on the spam because the U.S. were allies. But particularly in the Pacific, different islands like Guam and Hawaii, Okinawa, Philippines, and Korea became the sort of the main areas where spam uh, was embraced by the local population. Because for the local people, they were in dire poverty. And what spam represented was number one meat and also that American. And American things were seen as superior. It still is, you know, in, in some places.
3: And of course, it is beloved in Hawaii. You know,
6: in the United States, uh, spam has had, a, you know, really mixed reputation for a long, long time because it's seen as the food of the poor in the U.S., You know, I grew up with spam as being the butt of jokes and spam has this reputation as being a Franken food, mystery food, you know, quote unquote, white trash. But while that's going on, I think amongst Asian-Americans, you know, it was never been a food to joke about because spam was to them just something that they always had around them was never seen as odd or unusual. I think many Americans see spam as something that is weird, off-putting like gross you know i've seen many people make that face like oh spam right for most americans spam is mystery meat but for many asian americans and pacific people it's miracle meat
3: everything's in perspective because i mean think of all the disgusting packaged processed foods that you know people in middle america eat be things that white americans eat I've-, I've seen people who
6: eat hot dogs would like scoff at spam which makes right. no sense because if you look at the label Spam is very wholesome. There's, there's only like four or five ingredients in, in, in spam, cannot spam. Sodium nitrite, but that's all preserved meats have that. Compare that to like, say, a Twinkie or a, or like a Heitermeyer hot dog. Spam is the epitome of wholesomeness, you could argue.
3: <laughs> You're right. I'm looking at the ingredients. It's pork with ham, salt, water, potato starch, sugar, and sodium nitrate. It is yep. rather pure. Spam might be looked down on by some, but Hormel reports that sales have steadily climbed every single year, at least for the past 10 years. And the highest sales per capita are in Hawaii.
6: In Hawaii, McDonald's actually... Serve Spam for breakfast. Two scoops of rice. Put the rice in like, you know, ice cream scoop. Scrambled eggs, the McDonald's style. And then you can have either Portuguese sausage or Spam. But you know that in Hawaii, they also serve a version of cup ramen in both Burger King and in McDonald's. They do? Yeah, yeah. So You can go to McDonald's in Hawaii, order a Big Mac along a side of saimin. Noodle soup. Yeah, that's my favorite, one of my favorite things.
3: Are there any other dishes you can think of that came out post-World War II and all these other wars you're talking about where Spam just became a part of all these cultures? Are there any other iconic no, I mean, dishes a, like yeah, I, I,
6: For korean Americans, Spam has a very prominent role. Among the most popular Korean and slash Korean-American Spam-based dish would be Spam kimchi fried rice. Kimchi and Spam is like a marriage made in heaven. It's just crazy how good it is. I guess the most famous sort of Korean dish that has Spam is what's called pude chige, and pude means military base, and so it's this mishmash of all these ingredients that you associate with American convenient food, so hot dogs and Spam and canned baked beans, along with like ramen noodles, go in a big pot with like you know Korean you know gochujang and other flavorings, and then you make a stew, and that's a very famous dish for Koreans because it evokes the wartime.
3: It's so interesting how, you know, obviously in wartime, it's terrible. And then afterwards, these dishes become beloved, even though they're from these foods that, you know, they had to eat because of rationing.
6: I think nostalgia is very powerful. Even if you live through poverty and war, these morsels of food that at that time was such a saving grace, right? Delicious. They remember that when you have nothing else to eat and you eat something even partially edible. It's so delicious that memory of the deliciousness survives long after.
3: Robert argues that dishes like spam masubi or Spam fried rice aren't Asian-American. They are just American.
6: Asian-Americans have been part of this country as long as any other immigrant, right? So Chinese came to America in large numbers right before the Irish or the Italians or the Jews. However, for Asian-Americans, it's very difficult to be seen as literally American. American, You're perpetually foreign. And it's something that many Asian Americans of three, four, four generations struggle with still to this day. And so if you look at something like a typical American food, what are they? Hamburgers, hot dogs, pizza, now, those all have European origins to so came after, let's say the Chinese did, right? But why is Chinese food? Things like egg rolls and wonton soup and you know, Kung Pao chicken, whatever it may be, still seen as foreign when it is as American as apple pie, right? Which Um, isn't
3: American either and also comes (laughs) from Germany.
6: (laughs) Yeah. And so for me, spam um, must be and all spam related dishes that Asian Americans and Pacific peoples enjoy is part of the American experience. Asian Americans are just as American as any other American group. Plus today, Asian food in America is so popular. Oh my God everyone's eating it. I think to me, American food can be defined by the people who reside in this country. And American people are made up of hundreds of different languages and cultures and, you know, religions, you name it. And, you know, to me, they're all equally American.
3: Break time. Grab yourself a musubi. And when we come back, Margaret shows Strange Snacks. I heard you talking about a snack on some video series that was one of the oddest combinations I've ever heard. I was very impressed, but it started with a raisin bagel and it ended with mustard.
4: Oh, it's so gross. It's a raisin bagel with, I think maybe not toasted, but fresh and with uh, cream cheese, Doritos and mustard. It's so gross, but there was something about it. I don't know why. I think it's just a really satisfying thing. It's I think with the sweet, with the mustard, and also the the weird feeling of a raisin bagel as well. All of these things that are kind of very unconventional, slammed together. But I think chips in a sandwich is always oh, a good best. idea. Chips in a sandwich is very, it's like, is this supposed to be here or is it not supposed to be here? I think it's really great. I don't necessarily take too kindly to fries in a sandwich. You're really taking it to the limit with the fries in a sandwich. But chips in a sandwich, I think, is great. It's what lettuce onion. wishes it could be. Yeah, it's what let- lettuce should be. If, But, you know, lettuce has its place, too. I love a crispy fried onion in a sandwich as well. Mm-hmm, yeah. A shallot. The one place that a french fry is good,
3: though, is in falafel. In Israel, they stuff full mm-hmm. french fries in, and that actually mm-hmm. works well.
4: Mm-hmm. Or like a... A doner. Doner never yes. really quite cracked America, which is so sad to me because actually I think it's one of my very, very favorite foods. And I mean, we have kebabs and we, have, of course, have a lot of different Mediterranean, Middle Eastern options here, of course. But
3: yeah, it's it's more of a sophisticated street food than we're capable of. We're the hot dog people.
4: Yeah. Which I also, I love hot dog. I love um, any kind of a uh, A bagel dog. I love I love a Vienna sausage, even. I love spam. I love cubed cured meat.
3: Do you remember back in 2018 when Cynthia Nixon was running for governor in New York? I had to use her real name. But in my house, we call her Miranda Hobbs. So Miranda Hobbs was running for governor of New York and the press and then the entire country lost it when she was photographed ordering a bagel sandwich from Zabar's in New York City. It started off perfectly normal. There was cream cheese and lox, tomatoes, red onion and capers, but all of that on a cinnamon raisin bagel. (laughs) This is when Americans start to get interested in politics. This was written up everywhere. But Miranda Hobbs said exactly what you should say in this situation, which is, don't knock it until you try it. I am a big proponent of the don't yuck my yum philosophy. Until you have tried something, don't you dare say that it is gross. It is just new and unfamiliar. I just think it is so much more fun to be curious and have a sense of humor about food rather than saying that something is gross. I got a lot of texts from people sending me the screenshot of Van Leeuwen's new Hidden Valley Ranch flavored ice cream. And I will argue to the grave that it is not gross. It is whimsical. Anyway, I was curious about the unusual flavor combinations that you love
4: hi Rachel this is Sarah from Newcastle in the UK my favorite weird snack combo is baked beans with Pringles and um, it was discovered at the depths of a particularly savage hangover when I had nothing else in the kitchen and put the beans in the microwave and then I just used the Pringles basically just to shovel the beans into my mouth as quickly as possible and um, it's an amazing combo. Has to be Heinz baked beans. Has to be plain Pringles, no flavouring, please. Although if
0: you are feeling particularly dirty, you can melt some cheese into the beans as well.
1: Try it; you won't regret it. Hi, Rachel. This is James from Seattle. My strange snack came from my father's side of the family. Take a banana, slice it lengthwise, and then spread peanut butter on top of the banana, and then put mayonnaise on top of the peanut butter, and then sprinkle it with granulated sugar. It sounds really gross, but it's actually really tasty. Hi, Rachel. This is Darren from Edmonds. My strange food combo is that I put Worcestershire sauce on my mac and cheese. I've been doing it since I was a kid and have passed it on to others, including my wife, Marty, who thought it was really weird at first, but has since adopted it for her own mac and cheese embellishment.
2: This is April from Seattle. And when I was in high school, I would eat a peanut butter sandwich with pork floss in it, also called rosong. And pork floss, if you've never seen it before, is basically dried pork, but it has this very hairy texture to it. It's delicious. It is a combination of savory and sweet And I used to use just white bread and it would have just a very lovely texture. It's very hard to describe, but I did eat it loud and proud
5: and
3: I would today. I actually feel embarrassed that I don't have a strange snack combination. Or maybe I do and I just can't think of it. If you listen to me on the radio in Seattle for many years, you probably know that I have an obsession with eating sour cream straight out of the container. Or if I'm really getting fancy, I drizzle Tapatio hot sauce on top. I also eat shrimp tails if the shrimp is fried, but these are not strange snack combinations. These are single ingredient snacks. I just really thought I was more interesting than this. You mentioned that you have a touch of pica sometimes or
4: pica, pica. Yes. Yes. I want to eat AirPods. (laughs) I uh, have a hard time actually with that. I have to really think about it don't eat this. I will. I'll eat it. I do think sometimes cardboard looks good to me. Sometimes also uh, the stuffing of like my cats and dog stuffed animals and then they like pull out the stuffing. I do sometimes want to eat that. Uh, Buttons. I've not eaten any of these things, but I have to actively say to myself when I see them, don't eat that. Has that been your whole life? Well, I had a thing of like eating lipstick when I was a really little kid. And I think it was just because it just smelled somehow like I wanted to eat it. And and I did eat it, which is not good. I, I think I always have, but I've never actually indulged in it. I've never actually done it.
3: I wonder what that is. It makes me think of cartoons where someone's really hungry and their friend looks like a giant chicken leg. I love that.
4: <laughs> it looks so good because the steamy lines are coming off it. Like yeah. Perfectly and, you, and you see a button
3: and it just looks like the most delicious subi to you.
4: It does. Or if it's sometimes when plastic melts, I think it's going to be like creme brulee, like a <laughs> melted sugar.
3: Yeah, it's not.
4: No, not good. <laughs> and that
3: was Margaret Cho's last meal. make sure and get tickets to Margaret's live and livid comedy show. She is visiting a lot of cities. Chances are she is visiting a city near you. Find a link to buy a ticket to Margaret's show in the show notes. Thanks to Robert Koo, professor of Asian American Studies at Binghamton University and author of Dubious Gastronomy. And if you want even more spam, go back to my episode with Keiko Agena, Hawaiian native and Gilmore Girls star. Thanks to all the listeners who shared their snacky stories. My apologies if you did not end up on the show, but I put the call out on Instagram. I sent out a request to my newsletter. So if you want to participate in future shows, make sure you're subscribed. Just go to rachelbell.substack.com. It is completely free, but if you are feeling generous, you can donate to the show there. Your Last Meal is a slide down the Dinosaur Media production created and produced by me this episode was mixed by everyone's favorite fisherman randy torres theme music by seattle's own prom queen if you're not already make sure you're following along on instagram i'm hello rachel bell and please subscribe to the show rate the show review the show all of those things are free they only take a moment and they really do keep the show going i'm rachel bell and this is your last meal In my next right. life, I'll be one of those people who has a treadmill desk, <laughs>
6: okay.
3: which I think makes you look like a real ding dong, but probably feels pretty good.
6: Uh, um, yeah, maybe. I, yeah, I see people in the offices with that. I'm not sure I can go that route.
3: My favorite one is about the Faye yogurt, because the first line is, well, that was a much looser yogurt than I signed up for. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thank you all for listening to today's feed drop with your last meal with Rachel Bell and Rachel's guest, the one and only Margaret Cho. You can follow Rachel on Instagram at hello, Rachel Bell. Bell has an E at the end and Twitter. I'm Rachel Bell. You can follow Margaret Cho on Instagram at Margaret underscore Cho, C-H-O, and on Twitter at Margaret Cho. Uh, Margaret's also on tour right now, and you could find details about that at margaretcho.com. Thank you again, and we will see you, hear you, talk to you next week.
0: Hold up.